Welcome to the Blue Roads Changemaker Podcast. I'm Patty Talbot, CEO and co-founder of Blue Roads Education Group. In this series, you'll hear reflections about what it means to be a homegrown changemaker. We focus interviews around the Blue Roads mantra, homegrown solutions for a patchwork world. Our guests are amazing changemakers, solutionaries, and social innovators who've taken the path from local citizen to global changemaker and or from global citizen to local changemaker by working to change the system that creates the world's most challenging issues close to home and around the globe. I ask participants to tell us about their origins, how they've engaged with others different from themselves, how they work to create solutions, and how they've used these experiences to make the leap to changemakers addressing the UN Sustainable Development Goals. As their host, I try hard to take myself out of the conversation as much as possible so you won't notice the typical back and forth of the interview process. I hope this will help you to hear their stories as a complete narrative that addresses all four quadrants of the Blue Roads Changemaker Journey, Homegrown Solutions for a Patchwork World. Hello, everyone. This latest episode in the Changemaker series features Phyllis Albritton, who I have long called Blacksburg, Virginia's best-known citizen. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it is certainly true to me. I've been in Blacksburg for more than 40 years, and I don't seem to know a single person who doesn't also know Phyllis. She's literally everywhere. Phyllis seems to be at every meeting where decisions are made and every place where voices are raised and people are taking a stand for what is right, especially if that stand is for the needs of children or those living in poverty. Phyllis is also usually around anytime there is music and dancing to be had. Listen now to hear a bit of her extraordinary changemaker journey. Everybody. I am so excited today to be with my dear friend, Phyllis Albritton, to hear her changemaker story. And boy, does she have a lot of beautiful stories, a wonderful life of changemaking to share with us about. So welcome, Phyllis. I'm glad you're here. Thank you, Patty. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thrilled that you accepted the invitation. And I have known Phyllis for a lot of years, first through Blacksburg Presbyterian Church and then out in the community. And I see her active everywhere, anytime in Blacksburg when there's an event of any kind, from a cultural event to, a, to an activism kind of event, to a march, <laughs> whatever it is, Phyllis is there. And I think she's probably Blacksburg's best known citizen because every single person that I know knows of Phyllis. <laughs> You're famous for sure. I was born in Binghamton, New York, straight up I-81, the first city in that area. It's one of three cities, Binghamton, Endicott, and Johnson City, the triple cities. And I was born to a Ukrainian, used to say Russian, immigrant. My grandmother brought the children over because my grandfather would not join the communists. And so they beat him up terribly, burned down his hay bales, and he went running, thinking he was going to Brazil, but he ended up in Susquehanna, Pennsylvania, working the Erie Railroad. And then my mother would go through the village and say, is that my daddy? Is that my daddy? So when my mother was three years old, my grandmother sold the local. There were two businesses in the village. Of course, the alcohol store and the grocery store. They owned the grocery store. So she sold the store and sold the farm and worked the sugar beet fields through Germany. I left from Holland and came over to meet up with my grandfather. So 
mother was the immigrant girl from Ukraine, a Russian Orthodox, and my daddy was Jewish from New York City. His parents came over from Poland. And so I had a really very wonderful background going, raised Methodist in the Methodist church, where I learned the Hallelujah Chorus at the age of eight years old, if you can believe it, all the way through, and I'm still singing it, and going to the um, Ukrainian Orthodox and Russian Orthodox Church in Endicott, New York, singing in the choir and learning the ritual, the service. And in 1988, I went to Russia with uh, Bishop Basil Rodzianko, and there were three of us that could sing the liturgy with him as he reconsecrated churches. It's amazing. So my family was really amazing. And um, we were in Binghamton. My grandmother was in the village of Susquehanna. So we you know, did a lot of climbing and working in the garden of my grandmother's. And mother and daddy took us to Florida, to Chicago, to New York, to Lake George. Had a, a wonderful little, a home, a, rented a home on Aquaga Lake where they wanted to do dirty dancing. <laughs> but the owner said, no, they were too busy with people driving through from, coming through on buses from Canada to New York City. And so, of course, it was done here. <laughs> And I happened to be in it dancing with Mayor at the time of life. <laughs> My life's been very wild. <laughs> then I went to Northwestern University. I wanted to go as far away as they'd let me go <laughs> from Binghamton. I wasn't going to join a sorority because I'd been in a, an eighth grade to a middle school girls club, and then a ninth grade sorority, and then a high school sorority. And, you know, I thought, no, I'm not doing it anymore. And then I realized if I wasn't in a sorority, I couldn't do the things I wanted to do at Northwestern. <laughs> so I did get into one of the three top ones, Phi Beta Phi. And one thing I did was get all the fraternities and sororities to sponsor an international student because I'd been abroad when I was 1954 on Christian Youth Caravan. It was so amazing. In 1954, when I was 16, my father heard at, the, um, at his uh, Rotary Club in John City, New York, some uh, young people speaking about their trip. Christian Youth Caravan to Europe in the Middle East with um, Reverend Samuel Little in our area uh, and running room. And so he came home and asked me if I'd like to go. Well, 16. I'm thinking, what do I have to lose except possibly my boyfriend? <laughs> and I trusted my father. He was the most, both of my parents were the most amazing souls. They were amazing. So we went. One knapsack, third class all the way. And we first flew to England and we stayed with the church people all the way. Stayed in England, in France, and then went to Greece, a village outside of Salonika, and worked in the fields there, helping the village build a recreation center for the children. Went over to Istanbul and then down, of course, to the capital of Greece, and then went over to the Middle East, to Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Israel. I was in the first Palestinian refugee camps, believe it or not. And they were told when I was 16, I heard this, that the people in the Palestinian refugee camp told us, and I'm proud of my Jewish heritage on my daddy's side. And I think Israel has a right to exist, but what they're doing to, the, to our half brothers and sisters is really very, very bad. They told us under the tent in the Palestinian refugee camp that as the Jewish people were coming in to establish Israel, they were told over the radio by the British, leave your homes, you can come back in 48 hours. And the rest is history. Very difficult for me, history. And I kept asking speaker after speaker why the British did that. And there was a rabbi who spoke at our church here at Blacksburg Presbyterian Church in the 80s. And when I asked him the question, he said, well, the British thought the Palestinians would push the Jews back into the sea and Israel would never be established. Who knows? We don't know. 
but I have been living with this pain of how my people are treating. I have brothers and sisters for many generations since I'm now 82. So then I went off to Northwestern and ended up hearing at the Presbyterian Center there that man, uh, Reverend Ray Day, who spoke to us about an inner city program in Chicago, and he was needing volunteers. So in 1958, I worked inner city Chicago with poor black children and saw how very difficult their lives were. There were parents, moms mainly, that did not really care about the children. And one day I was walking down the street with this little fellow who's about eight years old, and we were talking about the policemen. And I said, well, you know, the policemen are our friends. He said, no, Miss Phelps, the policemen, they ain't my friend. I just walking down, running down the street for my mama to get something to eat and take back home. And the policeman stopped me and pushed me up against the wall. That was 1958. And then I was very blessed to go to Africa with Operation Crossroads Africa. It was just amazing, started by a Presbyterian minister out of New York City. So I experienced um, Nigeria as it was becoming free from England. And that was really an incredible experience. And then I went to Nicaragua. Remember when the Contra War was going and I happened to read in Time magazine about witness for peace started by Catholics and Presbyterians to take you up into the war zone to see for yourself what was going on with our tax dollars. That was quite an experience going up into the war zone. Benjamin Linder was killed when we were there. It was really quite a tragedy. And then of course my husband for years Clark led people to Nicaragua for 20 years, and I led groups to inner city Chicago. We took young people and adults, he to Nicaragua for 20 years, and I to inner city Chicago, good news partners, that a dear friend of mine got started when my first husband and I, when we went back to Northwestern, when he did grad school there, got Bud Ogle to be minister there at uh, Northwestern with the Presbyterian Church, and he started taking kids to inner city, uh, working at Beacon Neighborhood House to tutor the children. And then he needed people to come and help upgrade the apartment that they bought. And so I I just said to people here in Blacksburg, hey, should we go? And so for many, many years, you know, we went, led, as you may remember, leading people to inner city Chicago. My life has been very full. I've been grateful, of course, to be here on the school board, to work with the League of Women Voters, to be active with the PTA, with the NAACP. My prayer is that we could live in peace. We are all made in God's image. We are all, all made in God's image. And I don't understand why we can't see that even to this day. I do believe that we should have what they have in our two poorest countries in our hemisphere, in Cuba and Nicaragua. One, mandatory pre-K starting at three months and and, and right through college. In our two poorest countries in the hemisphere, they offer, and I've been to both countries, they offer, they have pre-K, mandatory pre-K, and then through college for everyone. They also have medical care for everyone. And when we were in both countries, you know, some of us in our group had to use the medical care. We were way up in the mountains of nowhere in Nicaragua when we're taken care of. You know, when we first started going, it was six hours dirt road all the way up the mountain. Life has been quite a quite a joyride for me, and I've been lucky to live in Binghamton, the most a beautiful city on the divergence of two rivers, 
and then enjoy the beautiful lakes of upstate New York. And then went to school in Evanston, Illinois at Northwestern, right on the lake. It was beautiful. And of course, enjoyed the city as well. And then lived in Boston. Now my, my father said when I got out of college, what, is, what are you going to do now? And I said, I don't know. I'd like to go to Africa. And so he allowed me to go to that, as I said. And then he said, how about going to secretarial school in case something happens to your husband? <laughs> Back in the day, you know, we could be nurses, teachers, or secretaries. And so I went to Boston to secretarial school and loved it. Lived right across the street from the commons. It was lovely. And then um, met my first husband, Bob Albritton, and we married. And he was in in seminary at Louisville and spent time there. And then he had a year in Missouri. And then we ended up being associate pastor with George Telford in Charlottesville. So we were there during the civil rights movement and the anti-Vietnam War movement. We were called communists. (laughs) You know, when the civil rights law was passed, he would go with the president of the NACP, Drury Brown, to check out the restaurants, you know, to see if they were truly desegregating. And I would accompany African-American people to the registrar's office to be sure that they were not abused as they were trying to get registered to vote. So there were no public kindergartens in Virginia back in 1963. So everyone, when we moved there, wanted to know where our children were going to be going to the proper private preschool to get into the proper private kindergarten, kind of like where I grew up, going to the proper kind of prep school to get into Yale, Harvard, or Princeton. And so I said, what about the poor children? And a black lady and I started probably the first desegregated school in the South called the Church Women's Preschool Experience. We got the names from social services and we picked the children up. We got all the churches, the women of the churches in the area involved. And it still is going on today at Westminster Presbyterian in Charlottesville. And of course, we moved here. There was no daycare either for our lower income children. Several of us got together and started the Valley Interfaith Child Care Center, which is still going today. And we named it Valley so that we were hoping it would you know, spread out throughout the area. And there's been some attempt at that over time. And now eventually it may happen. But lower income people have always been my big, big concern, as well as everyone being equal. We were taught in our, in our faith communities that we're all made in God's image. So I really don't understand why we still have these issues with our African-American brothers and sisters, Latino, with our poor. We had worked in Charlottesville, you know, with the NACP. And then finally, when the law was passed, the schools were to be desegregated. We were in the neighborhood where there were many African-American children. And I was so excited that my child was going to be going to this class, you know, the first year of desegregation in Charlottesville. But no, my husband then decided to leave the ministry and go into graduate school at Northwestern. So I went back to Northwestern. And lo and behold, in Evanston, Illinois, Patty, their schools were were segregated. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. And it just so happened that we lived in an apartment in a wealthier neighborhood of Evanston, right near the lake. And across the L tracks were the black community that were the servants of the people that lived in our neighborhood. And, oh my gosh, the president of PTA moved further north to get away from the desegregated schools. I was first vice president, so I became president of the uh, PTA (laughs) at the elementary school there. The children started coming, poor blacks and more wealthy whites. We weren't because we were grad students. Anyway, uh, my husband was. Uh, Lo and behold, Mr. 
I'm also going to mention his name, the principal, invited me in to talk to him, of course. And somebody warned me that he would try to say something that would control me and that he would have control of me. My very first meeting with this principal in Evanston, Illinois, as president of that school, said to me, Mrs. Albritton, I think your son is gay. I said, what? Really, Mr. Lander? I don't care whether my child is gay or not, as long as he uses his gifts from God for good in the world. (laughs) And of course, he was very racist. uh, And I got several African-American women on the board and we got rid of him. (laughs) So that's one of my, something I will will always remember, you know, along with um, accompanying African-American people to, to register to vote in Virginia, in Charlottesville. We were there, and it was a wonderful time in Evanston, and then we moved here. I was just really surprised again that there were no preschools, you know, for low-income children, but I've had an amazing life. I was lucky enough to go to Nigeria with Operation Crossroads Africa in 1960, just before they got their independence, and grew up in the village of Awomama, and I'm going to sing you a song, if you don't mind. Peace, peace. Where there is love, there is peace. And we traveled through Nigeria, stopping at different Igbo communities throughout Nigeria after we worked a month in the village and then helping them paint a school and stump trees because Ben and Zerbi, the uh, man who had gone to Ithaca, uh, to Cornell, was very impressed to see professors mowing their own lawns, shoveling their own walks, and the, and the wives cooking their own meals. And he wanted his children in his little there at Awamama to see us college students working with our hands. So we painted buildings and stumped the trees. But we learned from the village there this song. Peace, peace, where there is love, there is peace. And so as we traveled throughout Nicaragua, staying with evil people, we would always sing that together with the women. It was really great. So I loved going to Nigeria. During the Contra War, I read in the Time magazine about Witness for Peace, taking you up into the mountains. It was started by Catholics and Presbyterians to take you up into the mountains of Nicaragua to see for yourself what your tax dollars were doing. And I thought, well, so then I went, and then the next year Nick Jones went, and then the next year Clark Webb went, and then Gail Wimberly. And so for 20 years, that's how Clark got to taking people to our sister city in Nicaragua. And then my friend started that inner city ministry in Chicago after we'd gotten him at Northwestern to be minister at the, the, for the Presbyterian students. So then I took kids to inner and, and adults to inner city Chicago for 20 years. It's, we've had quite a life. It was great. And I do miss Clark a lot. Well, I do know one thing. During the tragedy at Tech, the two young men that were president and vice president of the student body after that uh, became very good friends of ours. They happened um, to start coming to a um, meditation yoga after Sunday afternoon program. To this day, they continue to thank us for orienting them to justice and peace. And one of them is in an amazing program in Texas, you know, working with refugees and, and doing this. And he keeps sharing how it was our influence on him that did that. I've had many people over my life, you know, especially the youngers, saying, you know, you've affected my life in making me more aware of the injustice and 
the poverty and the need for love and um, equality of all and caring for all in many ways. I'm, I'm very grateful for that, but it's just how I was raised. My parents, as I told you, you know, this <laughs> Ukrainian Orthodox girl, Jewish man, they never met a stranger. They had three women's and children's clothing stores in Binghamton, Endicott, and John City. And they were always giving to the poor. They were always taking clothes and food. And my mother would always take flowers to the people who were shut in. And, you know, I had such caring, wonderful parents that I it must say that I'm who I am today because of those two amazing souls who danced all their lives. They met dancing at Coney Island. And Daddy said to Mother, may I take you home? And she said, yes, if I pay my own way. And they got married in 1929 and danced their lives. Then that very night that daddy died, they danced to Lawrence Walk in the kitchen. And that's why I'm such a dancer. The work that you've done with preschools, both in Charlottesville and here locally, and on the school board, every one of them ripples out exponentially through the children that you impact. If you think about a three-year-old who couldn't have gone to school had it not been for you and the people you gathered around you to make that happen and uh, they're more ready to go to school. Every child that is made more ready, <laughs> and you know this, we share this importance of education, you know, makes them grow up to be able to contribute and better parents and better educators. And so that ripple effect is exponential. As well as I think it gives them some self-esteem. The people with no self-esteem, and it's very difficult for me. And, and we moved here. The poverty was just overwhelming to me. And nobody seemed to care. And so that's really one of the reasons I wanted to get something going for our poor children. Ache and I ache and I ache for this nation, for the environment, for the world, and especially our poor, our people who are left out. and I. And I think as the prison system gets more privatized, you know, we want to put them in prison, you know, so yeah. people who have so much money can make more. And you know how prison population is projected. Yeah. By yeah. third grade. <laughs> That's right. In third grade. Yes. That's right. We talked about that. Yes. And that is just, uh, just horrendous. It is. Phyllis, I thank you for this conversation so much. Thank you, Phyllis. Thank you for sharing your incredible changemaker story with us. Your amazing parents certainly modeled a commitment to service and a love of life and dancing that shines on through you. And we are very grateful. Thanks for tuning in to the Blue Roads Changemaker podcast. We hope you'll follow our work and learn more about how you can get involved and start your own changemaker journey at www.blueroadseducation.org. We'd love it if you could subscribe to the Blue Roads Changemaker podcast and give us a rating on iTunes so that others can find us too. This also helps to elevate the voices of the amazing changemakers you're learning about in our series. Mm-hmm.